This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, welcome to Episode 5 of Prick the Balloon. I'm Mike Vance. It's almost Thanksgiving, and aside from pellet smoking a turkey on the back porch, I wanted to do my part for the holiday by talking about the Pilgrims and Puritans. Now, I hate to open with a shameless plug, but I'll remind you that I write books, and they can be found on my website store at MikeVanceWriter.com. So, you know I love words, and like every writer on the planet, there are some words that I like way more than others. One I've always been drawn to is puritanical. Now, I am the first and loudest to say that American exceptionalism is almost always a bunch of bullshit, but in this case, puritanical is one American-ass word. You can't miss the fact that the Puritan ethic still runs way too strong in the United States. John Winthrop, who I'll talk about extensively in a little bit, is probably the top dude to blame. With apologies to John Steinbeck and Henry Fonda, it's like you can just picture this tight ass on the back of a wagon saying, Every time some Bible thumper bans a book, I'll be there. When the house speaker sets up software so he doesn't accidentally whack off, I'll be there too. And if a decorated veteran wants to have a beer and watch the pregame show on Sunday, I'll sure put a stop to that shit. One big thing at the outset is to notice that there is a difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. They're both religious zealots who fled England, but there are differences. The Pilgrims are those turkey and cranberry sauce-eaten folks who inspired all the paper hats we wore in elementary school. But let's get a reminder in here about the early American written history timeline. The Pilgrims were, of course, not the first Europeans to come to what is today the United States. They're not even close. There were Vikings who settled in today's Canada almost exactly 600 years before the Pilgrims arrived. We all know the Spanish showed up under an Italian named Colombo in the 1490s, and they had built permanent settlements in Florida and New Mexico in the 1500s. Both the French and the Dutch had set up settlements in Canada and New England before the Pilgrims showed their drab asses up. In short, parts of the U.S. and Canada were already lousy with Europeans before the Pilgrims were even born. So, Massachusetts needs to just step off a little. Mm -hmm. The Pilgrims weren't even the first English people in New England. In 1602, a guy with the mellifluous name of Bartholomew Gosnold, and if that doesn't get you laid, I don't know what will, showed up in a little ship on the coast of Maine. As soon as they got there, a very nice sailboat shows up containing Indians with painted faces, one of whom was wearing a European waistcoat, breeches, and hose, and they hop aboard Gosnold's ship like this sort of thing happens every day. And they start telling the English how they've been trading with fishermen from the Bosque, there between France and Spain, for decades. So, can the Pilgrims at least say they were the first English people in Massachusetts? Nope, because Gosnold, figuring he needed to look somewhere else to start his settlement, turned toward the south. It was Gosnold who named both Cape Cod, because they had a shit ton of fish to catch, and Martha's Vineyard, which was named in honor of his daughter. Aw, 
Ultimately, Gosnold was involved with the English settlement of Jamestown down in Virginia. My dad's ancestors settled in Jamestown in 1609 and later. Luckily, they weren't part of the first group of settlers who all died. And sadly, that included Bartholomew Gosnold. In 1620, we finally get to the Pilgrims. The first thing to know is they missed their target. They were looking for the Hudson River because they had a charter for settlement there, not from the English, but from the Dutch. Henry Hudson, who was English but had been sailing for the Dutch East India Company in 1609 when he became impressed with the future side of New York City, had been talking this location up big time back in the Netherlands. And yes, you heard right. The Dutch East India Company sent Hudson to look for a shorter passage to Asia just like Columbus more than a century earlier was doing for Isabella and Ferdinand. Lots of Europeans were having a tough time wrapping their head around this whole Americas concept, and clearly they still do. The Pilgrims, on the other hand, were just looking for a place to be infidels. They'd been religious separatists from the town of, and I am not making this up, Scrooby in northern England. Yes, as in Rutrow, Scrooby-Doo. They thought the church was too loosey-goosey, what with all their crosses and fancy architecture, wedding rings, and celebrating Christmas and Easter. They just wanted to completely break away from the Church of England and been holding their religious services in secret, extremely drab, and unadorned rooms. They were ostracized to the point that they had to move to the Netherlands, specifically Leiden. But after spending time in Holland, the pilgrims thought the Dutch were too wild and permissive, and this was way before pot and hookers and windows. So, the pilgrims decided to sail to America where they could do what they wanted. They started with two ships, but one of them was taken on water, so they ended up with just the one, the Mayflower. There were 102 passengers and 30 crew. That breaks down to 74 men and 28 women, almost all of whom were either married or children. By my count, that leaves about 50 men in the ship's head with a magazine. Also notable about those 102 passengers, almost half of them were brought as servants to the other half. About 50% of the passengers died in the first winter on the coast of Massachusetts. Now, the pilgrims knew they were in the wrong spot when they landed, but the seas and winds and shoals were threatening to wreck the Mayflower, so just like John Cleese in Silverado, the captain said, Today my destination is here. They land near a big rock, though not the one everyone visits today and throws pennies at, and they immediately open a wicked gift shop and a Dunkin' Donuts. Okay, that's not true. The Pilgrims did not bravely cut a settlement from the wilderness either. They took over Patuxet, an indigenous village that had been wiped clean by disease, possibly smallpox, sometime during the previous 10 or 15 years. Yes, the Europeans brought diseases that wiped out millions of the indigenous people they called Indians. That almost certainly included dozens of my grandmothers and therefore my direct ancestors. But, let's face it, none of these schmoes understood virology or infectious diseases. Anthony Fauci was not there to carefully explain it so they could in turn completely ignore it. It was a horrible tragedy. An estimated 9 out of 10 of the native Indian inhabitants from Chile and Argentina all the way to the Arctic Circle, died of diseases for which they had no natural immunity. But it was certainly not deliberate. These first Europeans to the Americas didn't even understand they were doing it. Keep in mind that a microscopic disease in the Black Plague had killed 25 million people, a third of Europe, a couple hundred years earlier. So, this would be one area where I think we should cut the emigrant Euros some slack. 
they certainly got busy with the deliberate killings soon enough. Samuel Champlain, the French explorer who got his name on a pretty lake and another one of the folks who came before the pilgrims, had drawn a detailed map of Patuxet, which he called Port Saint-Louis, after one of the roughly 207 French kings by that name. So, the pilgrims find this wonderfully intact little village that they could move right into. It even had furniture and rent control. And then, who should show up but this man named Tisquantum, or Squanto for short, who spoke English and showed them how to plant corn using dead fish for fertilizer. They were saved from starvation, and they dropped to their knees to thank the Lord for sending this lone and only survivor of Patuxet to deliver unto them the glorious bounty of the land. But why had Squanto survived? Because earlier European captains were fucking kidnapping these natives to either sell into slavery or take back to London to parade through the streets like some fat-bearded sideshow act who the civilized Englishman could gawk at for spare change. Squanto specifically had been sold into slavery in Spain, but he escaped, went to London, managed to catch a boat to Newfoundland, and then found his way back home, only to find that everyone he knew had been wiped out by the pox and replaced with pasty white religious freaks who weren't smart enough to plant corn. I'm guessing his view of being a divinely sent savior may have differed. In any event, he soon died of a bloody fever which the pilgrims put down as being an Indian disease. As for the name Patuxet, pilgrim leader John Smith christened the village they stole to be Plymouth because Studebaker was already taken. Let's face it, nobody excels at international arrogance quite as well as the English. And largely, that was the end of the pilgrims' importance because just a few years later, the Puritans and John Winthrop arrive and they find a much more salubrious spot for a settlement on the Charles River, which became Boston, a wonderful city and one of the several cradles of American liberty. The pilgrims stay down there in Plymouth Colony, which is the bottom of the grip on the pistol shape of Massachusetts, and the Puritans establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is the big pot of chowder. As for the first Thanksgiving, well, in April of 1598, 23 years before the pilgrims' big dinner, a Spanish expedition of 500 people under Juan de Oñate struggled out of the Chihuahuan Desert, crossed the Rio Grande River, and were saved by help from the local natives at what is today San Elizario, Texas, near El Paso. In honor of the blessed event, Oñate declared a day of Thanksgiving, which included food, fish, and game. Why have you never heard of this? Because the pilgrims had great PR. Much of American history was written by New Yorkers, who did weekends in New England while they were poaching players from the Red Sox. On to the Puritans, the people who continue to be a pain in our collective asses today. To figure out who these people are, you have to look at Martin Luther, Henry VIII, John Calvin, the Protestant Reformation, and the English Civil War. It's hundreds of years of strife and bloodshed over this one question. We've left the Catholic Church, so now exactly just how Protestant do we really want to be? Protestants are still fighting about it today, with the only major difference being the Puritans didn't have potato salad. When the first boatloads of Puritans sailed from England to the new colonies, the Puritan preachers in England, where they were already an established sect, told them that they were the chosen people, carrying the strict and unflinching word of God to the new world. Many of their beliefs were similar to the pilgrims, but 
the Puritans wanted to remain a part of the Church of England. They just wanted the church to be more austere and much less fun. The Puritans promised to be loyal to the king and the church, but a proverbial shit ton of them thought they could do that better in Massachusetts than in England itself. In the late 1620s, King Charles I was on the throne of England in a non-Elvis way, and he was pissing people off right and left. He expanded taxes because he wanted to build a better navy, and he introduced more ceremony into the services of the Church of England. This last part was especially galling to the Scots, who are a dour, haggis-eating people. Parliament was against him, so Charles just basically dissolved Parliament for 11 years and ran things himself. It's called the period of personal rule, and during that time, roughly 20,000 Puritans left Britain for Massachusetts. Earlier, I mentioned the Dutch East India Company and Henry Hudson, and it's really important to remember this model. The Dutch and the French and the Spanish and most decidedly the English all had this corporate structure to exploration in one form or another. Basically, rich people invested in searching out and settling new lands in return for the lion's share of the loot. They weren't just sailing the world for the sake of curiosity. The Spanish were pretty blatant about it. They had the appointed viceroys sending out conquistadors to bring back gold, which the viceroy in the Americas and the king back in Spain then got to pocket. The Brits were much more businesslike about the whole thing. Right around 1600, there was this minor flurry of company forming in London. Companies who sold shares of stock that determined who got what. The biggest was the British East India Company, which literally grew to rule a good portion of the world for a while. Think oil companies in coastal Africa and United Fruit in the Caribbean, except these British companies had even greater control. I've talked about my mom's ancestors on here before, but my dad's family is much less diverse. Scots, French, and English. That's it. As I alluded to, they were at Jamestown by 1609. They came here under the auspices of the Virginia Company, and one line of my family was represented by a guy who was like the fourth or fifth son in a wealthy merchant family in London, and being that low on the totem pole, he wasn't going to inherit shit. But his older brother was a bigwig in the Virginia Company, and he tossed little William a bone by sending him to Jamestown to keep an eye on his investment. The Puritans, technically Congregationalists, who founded Boston were in the same situation. They were financed by the Massachusetts Bay Company. They'd tried once before in 1623 by sending people to Cape Ann. So, as much as this was about religious freedom for the settlers themselves, it was also about making piles of money for the people who paid for the ships and supplies. There are still people today who will extol the virtues of the Puritan colony, and one of the things they bring up is free elections. That's very true. They had frequent elections every year, and their preachers were forbidden from holding public office. It was more than you got back in England itself. But who was allowed to vote? Only free men who were members of their church. So, the dudes who held office all believed that their primary job was to enforce God's will as they interpreted it. Personally, I find that beyond chilling. Think about all the craven little politicians today who say they are doing the Lord's bidding, and that's John Winthrop in Boston. Him being governor was his chance to serve God and get a massive ego rub and maybe a little cashola. 
The most important part of the answer to those who hold up Winthrop and regularly scheduled elections is that they were already doing this in Virginia. The democratically elected House of Burgesses in Virginia started before the Pilgrims even landed, let alone the Puritans in Winthrop. And Virginia was doing it, albeit not on a schedule, without any religious litmus test. In fact, most of the great American things the Bostonians crow about were being done first in Virginia. This Puritan government in Massachusetts also quickly devolved into straight-up authoritarianism, and that included a pledge by the government officials to rat out anyone being seditious or treacherous. Winthrop said, we can't just have some old willy-nilly democracy because such a form of law was not written in the Bible. Sarah Vowell wrote about Winthrop and his Puritan co-conspirators all being enamored of the Fifth Commandment, honor thy father and mother. But they didn't limit that to the people who changed your diapers and told you to put gas in the car and be home by 11. To them, the preachers were your fathers through Scripture, and the elected officials were your fathers through biblical law. And if you don't sufficiently honor them, you get whipped, banished, or get your ears cut off. This remains part of the current Republican Party platform. I guess it's better than if you got caught denouncing the Bible itself, which could lead you to execution. One thing that was a big plus for their reputation is the Puritans valued education. They loved books, as long as they contained what they wanted taught, of course. They established the first college in the English-American colonies, that being Harvard. They studied Greek. They wanted to learn science. Cotton Mather, a Puritan preacher who was admitted to Harvard at age 12, did his own studies on plant hybridization and he 100% backed inoculations against smallpox, which happened to be something he learned about from his African slave. In fact, many decades later, it was the descendants of the Puritans who gave us the first public school systems in the United States, something that didn't take hold in the American South until, I don't know, maybe next year. A boy can dream. Anyway, the Puritans were definitely not aligned with the modern Republicans on the science and education front. On the undeniably negative side, the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were the first to import slavery into New England. Actually, they didn't even wait to import it. Some of the earliest Puritans either enslaved Native Indians locally or shipped them off to the West Indies for money. They also brought in Africans, not as many as the South because their economic setup didn't call for it, but there were numerous house servants and some farm laborers. Some Puritans were against the practice pretty early on, and Massachusetts became a hotbed of abolitionists even by the 18th century. But the state didn't formally outlaw slavery until 1783. One thing about the Puritans is that they fought and argued amongst themselves constantly. Throughout the whole existence of Puritans in Massachusetts, they kept having disagreements among themselves over who was the more pure and chaste than the next guy. And then they got pissed off over things like prayer books or how long to pray of a morning, and they'd splinter off and start a new village, taking their holy ball and going home. Roger Williams got his panties in such a wad that he split off and gave us a whole new state, albeit the smallest one, Rhode Island, a state that can literally not hold three Chevy Suburbans at the same time. Okay, that's mostly a reflection on the absurdity of big-ass SUVs. Love you, Rhode Island. Williams' entire beef with the Puritans was that they were not pious enough. Roger Williams was a little bit of a crazy man, but 
He was the one that started talking about the wall of separation between church and state, though he wanted to make sure the civil authorities couldn't do anything to intrude on his religion, not the other way around. And in Rhode Island, he defended other religions beside his own, and he preached that the English should not be taking land from the native Indians. How did the Puritans get along with others? They talked a good game. Winthrop was all for loving thy neighbors, at least on paper. There have been entire books written about John Winthrop's speeches, about everyone being dependent upon everyone else. He repeatedly talked of building a nation where nothing stands between man and his loving God. Winthrop's most famous sermon talks of building a city on a hill, a phrase that Ronald Reagan's speechwriter stole without remorse. And the fact is that neither Winthrop nor Reagan actually meant a word of it in practice. They both went on ad nauseum about America being chosen by God as someplace special, and that is just an unmitigated heap of stinky dung. We all gain by doing the right thing, by being good people, and by treating others well, and that is the same if you're in Boston, Des Moines, Paris, Beijing, or Abuja. The Puritans of Winthrop were not at all quick to be tolerant or even help their neighbors in times of misfortune. They got along with the Indians until they very spectacularly and brutally did not. There are cases of Winthrop himself sharing firewood with someone needy. But the fact that it was worthy of comment at all means that it was not the norm. There are also records of him scolding his deputy for overcharging poor customers. But again, that just means there are Puritan leaders overcharging poor people. So city on the hill, my ass. If you weren't on board with them, well, things got tough. Being a Quaker would get you hanged. Only King Charles sending an order from London put a stop to that practice. The Puritans publicly unloaded on people for the tiniest inanities. Winthrop badmouthed his own deputy governor for the unforgivable sin of putting up wainscoting in his new house. The deputy, in turn, castigated Winthrop for giving gunpowder to the Plymouth colonists when they were being attacked by Indians. It was pettiness and entitlement that would make Mariah Carey shake her head. A very early colonist of Massachusetts, a lawyer named Thomas Morton, had trouble getting along with the Puritans, in this case, the ones in Plymouth Colony. He finally moved out of town and set up his own little compound. He started trading and consorting with the local Indians. He set up a maypole on May Day, stayed up late drinking, and he and his indigenous pals danced around it. It is entirely possible Morton even had sex with Indian women. Rawr. Puritans banished him from the colony. Once he was back in England, Morton wrote a book called The New English Canaan, accusing the Puritans of stealing the Indians' land and destroying their culture and the natural environment. It was the very first book banned in the American colonies. Let's take a minute and talk about the Puritans and sex. As you might imagine, they were largely against it, except in very specific cases where it made more Puritans. They even mandated procreation for that event. Any other sexual activity, though, could literally earn you a whipping, which some people might view as an absolute bonus. As you might imagine, judging by the amount of rank hypocrisy among the holier-than-thou right-wing politicians of modern times, the Puritans also ignored most of their own rules about sex, and then some. 
Let me just say that wide stance Larry Craig, hand job Lauren Boebert, do you want some candy Dennis Hastert, and I saw nothing Jim Jordan would all have made great Puritans. If you look at the trial records from the Puritan courts, you find people hauled in for premarital sex, extramarital sex, babies born out of wedlock, men banging other men, women with women, men with boys, and an inordinate number of men with animals. In one of the saddest of the sad Bible facts, one of the verses in Leviticus says that when a man is caught getting it on with an animal, both he and the animal must be put to death. Jesus. I mean, like the poor animal was given this freak to come on. Was the sheep wearing something low-cut and slinky? No. She was minding her own damn business eating fescue. But that didn't stop the Puritans in America or back in Europe. In 1642, Thomas Granger was accused of having sex with a horse, a cow, two goats, five sheep, two calves, and a turkey. The prosecution made him identify the specific animals he'd been doing the pokey-pokey with, and then they killed the animals right in front of him before they hanged Granger. There were even cases where a guy was accused because one of his barnyard animals had a foal or calf or something that looked too much like him. George Spencer, who had a bad eye, was put to death when one of his pigs popped out a piglet who also had a bad eye. I mean, I could see if it was a receding hairline or an inability to roll its tongue, but come on! Some Massachusetts Puritans did later on come to allow bundling, where a young unmarried couple who were courting could share a bed in the parents' home all night, unsupervised, as long as they had all their clothes on and were wrapped in a sheet. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Like their modern Baptist descendants, Puritans were also very much against dancing. One of the major preachers, a dude named Increase Mather, said, quote, The very motion of the body which is used in dancing has a palpable tendency to that which is evil, end quote. He called dancing between a man and a woman, again, quote, recreation fitter for pagans and whores and drunkards than for Christians. If anything ever made me want a foxtrot. Music itself was acceptable, but by God, if we see that toe so much as tapping, we are going to cut that little bastard off. Too much tobacco was punishable. Drinking was okay, but only a little and only as long as you didn't have too much fun doing it. They brought more beer than water on their sailing trips to America, but that was because water got rancid. Beer was safer than water, and every person in America, including the children, drank it pretty much all day long. So yeah, Puritans drank, but they didn't believe you should do it in public. The blue laws that Americans had to deal with for generations, those came straight from the Puritans. Massachusetts didn't allow Sunday alcohol sales until 2004, coincidentally the first year the Red Sox won the World Series in almost a century. Apologists for the Puritans today, and there are lots of them, will try to tell you they loved art, and that is horseshit. They were down with poetry. John Milton, back in England, was a Puritan. But when it came to theater and visual arts like painting and sculpture, they were with Satan. They dictated what you could wear. No golden threads or embroidery. Elton John and Lady Gaga would have been in deep shit in 17th century Boston. Like everything else involving colonies, events in the ruling country ultimately drove the narrative. 
King James II revoked the charter for the Massachusetts Bay Company, as if the Puritans didn't hate him enough already. James II was Catholic. Oh, horrors. There was nothing the Puritans hated more than Catholics. James got deposed from the throne by the rest of the Protestants in England, giving way to William and Mary, popular monarchs who clearly never learned the vagaries of American football. James II was the last Catholic monarch in Britain. But the celebrations didn't last long because in 1691, there was a new colonial charter that combined the Bay Colony with Plymouth and a couple of little splinters, and it all gave us the pistol shape of Massachusetts that we know and love today. Needless to say, though, the influence of those Puritans lives on in Mitt Romney's underwear drawer. You can't talk about the Puritans and not go into the subject of witch trials. The trials came right at the same time as the investors in the colony were changing. Almost any vague accusation would make a person suspected of being a witch. In the category of really horrific things, giving birth to a stillborn child or one who was somehow disabled was viewed as a sign that the woman had consorted with the devil or some other evil beast, and that could lead to her being branded a witch. Women were forced to bury their deformed newborns in secret or risk severe punishment or death. The most famous witch trials were the Salem witch trials in the 1690s, after the Puritans had been in Massachusetts for a good long while. First off, these started in Salem Village, which is not Salem Town, where you find all the t-shirt shops in Bette Midler. The village broke off because of one of those stupid-ass little disputes that I mentioned earlier. The whole witch trial thing started with the preacher's teenage daughter in Salem Village. Her name was Betty Paris, and she started making animal noises, going limp while staring into space, and babbling incoherently. Eventually, she was elected to the House of Representatives from Georgia's 14th District. Pretty soon, her cousin was afflicted. The modern theory is that these girls were eating bread made with grain that had been infected with a fungus that has LSD-like qualities, as in, dude, don't eat the brown rye. The Puritans needed some explanation, so they turned to the most logical one. It was the devil. The girls and the others started accusing the most vulnerable people around at that point, saying they were instruments of Satan who had caused this weird behavior. There was one of the enslaved Indians, a woman named Tituba. There was a homeless woman. Remember how charitable the Puritans were. There was a 71-year-old lady who probably had yelled, get off my lawn, one too many times. In that case, 39 townspeople signed a petition asking that she be saved, but the Puritan leaders said, absolutely not, we got witches to kill. By the end, it had devolved into accusing people over grudges and family feuds. They had accomplished all this by hanging. Now, I did see one apologist for the Puritans who wrote that because they never actually burned anyone at the stake, it wasn't as bad as history made out. I'm sure that was a great solace to the random 25 innocent people who were murdered in the name of Puritan law. That's 19 hanged, 5 who died in prison, and one lucky guy who was pressed to death. His name was Giles Corey, and it took three days of this torture for him to die. So don't ever tell me to cut the Puritans a break. One of the young girls did later apologize for having her neighbor killed, so that's something. The rest of the people just went about their business. It was Nathaniel Hawthorne, descendant of one of the witch trial judges who changed the spelling of his name to lessen the association, who injected an air of mystery through his novels, and the commercialism in Salem built up from there. 
I mean, why the hell not? It's the American way, as they will explain when Gacy Land opens just east of O'Hare. There is no doubt whatsoever that little old New England has had an outsized influence on the shape of the modern United States. For over two centuries, most Americans almost totally ignored the fact that most of our territory was originally Spanish or French. New England and New York ruled the rest of us, and in many ways, they still do. Possibly the biggest legacy of the Puritans is their work ethic. The Puritans believed that you should always be working, except on Sunday when you should worship and move your arms and legs as little as humanly possible. Into the start of the 20th century, Major League Baseball had to contend with several states where games could not be played on the Sabbath. As for the other six days, hard work was ordered by God himself. The Puritans rammed that home so relentlessly that centuries later, Americans are still thinking like an abuse victim. Studies done in the 2010s showed that Americans still feel like they shouldn't spend time socializing at work. Hostility to social welfare programs and prejudice against the poor, that fits right into the Puritan teachings that everybody must work every day, don't give me any excuses, boy, and quit your slacking. Poverty was, quote, a moral failing to be condemned, end quote. Those thoughts were beaten into the American psyche 400 years ago. When you see your European friends getting four to six weeks paid vacation, you should be thinking, jump up my ass, John Winthrop. How else do the Puritans live on? You'll find those underpinnings throughout right-wing policy. Glorify the rich. The Puritans believed that if you amassed a ton of jack, good for you. Even if you got it all by taking advantage of the little guy or by refusing to pay the bills for work at your casino, they believed that you got rich because God was smiling on you. Women are inferior. Anne Hutchison was banished from the colony largely for having the temerity to hold lectures in her home for women who wanted to hear her commentary on recent sermons. The Puritans believed that the wife and mother was even subordinate to her own male children. Rape was a crime, but it required more than one witness to prosecute. Today, when you hear that abortion should be outlawed in all cases, that's part of the notion that God's law— written by decidedly human men many centuries after the alleged words they lay out, should supersede all else. When Jefferson and Franklin and the rest of the Founding Fathers wrote adamantly about the separation of church and state, they weren't talking about the far-off Catholics in Spain as much as they were talking about the Puritans in Massachusetts. I leave you with a great quote from one of the two most curmudgeonly newspaper writers in U.S. history. H.L. Mencken defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. It's an exaggeration, but in my book, not by much. And remember, you never, ever analyze the joke. All right, I have a bit of news regarding the podcast. My longtime friend and now Prick the Balloon listener Dave Little asked for some suggested reading recommendations to be added for each episode, and I've done that on my website. Go to MikeVanceWriter.com and you'll find podcasts under the History drop-down in the top navigation bar. It's a place to start if you want to learn more. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.